Happy Saturday. It's November 6, 2021, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. I'm Michael Haney, a deputy editor here at Airmail. Welcome to November. Praise be, Michael. We're done with Halloween. We're done with Halloween. The sugar redistribution centers around the city have fulfilled their deeds and I'm sure transferred all that sugar into your house, Ashley, with people bouncing off the walls. But it's been a good week. We've got a new mayor-elect here in New York City, and things are moving on. Yeah, you know, we had the big climate summit coming. A lot of people took their private jets there. Guess we're not supposed to get too upset about that. There are some positive things happening, it seems, for one. So children are going to get vaccinated. The holidays are approaching. Life is relatively good, Michael. Do I, should I say that cautiously? At any rate, it's a relatively optimistic issue of airmail today. We don't have any scandals for you that are going to make your blood Curdle. Well, the week is young. Who knows? Maybe something will appear. You never know. Speaking of this year, we've got a lot of fun things. We've got words. We've got great book reviews. Where would you like to begin, my dear? Let's talk about the power of positive thinking, Michael. You're asking the wrong guy, but sure, I'll go in with you. What do you got? So many people right now are issuing calls to action on all sorts of topics, but Susie Dent, a lexicographer, etymologist, and broadcaster on language, is calling for all of us to rethink our language and bring back the counterparts to what linguists call orphan negatives. These are words that have lost their better half. These are the unkempts, the uncouths, underwhelms, and nonplusts of the world. Those that have lost their mojo and linger on the bad or sad side of life. Michael, I'd actually never heard this idea and I kind of love it. I kind of love it because as she points out an example, she says, how come superstars for example, try to travel incognito. Wouldn't it be marvelous for the rest of us to travel cognito and get the benefits of that? So she imagines herself at a passport check at the airport and the baggage owner saying, good afternoon, Susie. I see you're traveling cognito today. So right this way, no need to go through all that security rigmarole. I'll take you right to your seat. So she points out there's been this habit in English language to redefine words by their negative. And she says, once upon a time, there were many positives, like ungainly was, it was actually gainly, which meant becoming. Untoward was actually toward, meant you were obliging and helpful. And unwieldy, there was wieldy, which meant you were handy with a weapon. So she's like, why are we dwelling on this negative side of life? But I also loved what she gets to in here, which is, rediscovering some words that have drifted out of use but are still in the dictionary. And here are two, as you enjoy your breakfast this morning, or as I might say, as you enjoy your cackle farts and bags of mystery, think about this because, as she mentions, Victorians once liked to call sausages bags of mystery and eggs were known as cackle farts. So I think it's all good. Right. Look, you know, there's a lot to love about the Victorians, with the exception of, you know, endless wars and a repressive lifestyle. At least they got something right in the realm of language. Yeah, but my favorite word, as she points out, is on these winter's days that are coming and you go out for a stroll and you feel the simple pleasure of the sun on your back. I've often thought, what a feeling that is. If only there were a word to describe that feeling. Well, Susie Dent has it, and it's called apricity. A-P-R-I-C-T-Y. Something to remember, right? Or at the very least, something to write on a post-it note and stick on your computer. Or just be like a kids. Well, the kids these days and get it tattooed on your wrist and then use it to pick up chicks. Do you have any tattoos? No, dear. Do you? Are you sure? <laughs> I'm asking Brooke. Am I sure? I have never put the pin to the skin. No, I do. I have no tattoos. And you? What do you think? I don't think you do. There's a giant butterfly on my lower back, perhaps. Just kidding. None yet. Never too late, Michael. Never too late. Yeah. 
No, no thanks. It doesn't really go with your whole look, like the knitted sweater, the Oxford shirt, the tie, and then like a giant thorn tattooed around your bicep. I just don't see it. What if it. you just found out everything from the sort of like neckline down, it looks look like Conor McGregor, just fully sleeved. And that's why I keep it all buttoned up, you know, just to... It's like you and Travis, it's like you're the Travis Barker doppelganger. By the way, we got to talk about the reader reaction to one of our stories last week, which was Laura Gill's review of Kylie Jenner's bathing suit line. We read all the comments on Instagram. I was surprised by all the comments on Instagram. People felt very strongly about this story. Yeah. And I think also we're still shocked to find out that Flora had once spent a week naked in her house as a nudist. But Well, we knew that, Michael. That's why we like her. That was one of the stories that made her that we think she should write for airmail. But yes. What is your insight to why this piece was kind of so divisive for readers? What, why do you, what do you see in that? Well, if I'm not mistaken, I think we've made it through two and a half years of airmail without writing about the Kardashian-Jenners, which is pretty miraculous considering that every other publication in the universe has written about them regularly. So there was some blowback from readers who thought, can't believe you guys have stooped to this level. Some people thought that we were doing a takedown of a female entrepreneur, not really. But as editors, we do pay attention to this stuff and it was fascinating. And some people hated on Kylie. Some people hated on us for writing about Kylie. Some people hated on us for taking down Kylie or attempting to, which... Nobody can really take down Kylie Jenner, let's be clear. I kind of uh, saw it as a hate read. People just wanted to read it and then like push the old Mark Zuckerberg button that says they don't like it. Oh God, speaking of Mark Zuckerberg, can we talk about the metaverse? (laughs) I'm in it right now. (laughs) Floating here. After we heard this announcement, I sent a message to our editorial Slack channel saying, can we please change the word that we use to refer to our backend data usage, which we call all that our metadata like everyone else. Now it just has these kind of creepy Zuck connotations. Maybe we need Susie Dent here to come up with a new word. But I, I think, look, here's the problem with like Mark Zuckerberg and this metaverse is he's just trying to get all of us to go. We already know social media is the problem and can, has contributed to so many problems as we've learned in these, with these Facebook papers and these congressional hearings. And now it's just like, look over there, everyone. Don't pay attention to that. Now I'm going to take you deeper into the world of social media. I'm going to get you to live like more of your life there and create an alternate version of yourself, which is problem is we're not spending enough time in reality. And I say this in the same week that we're trying to find how to save the planet with the COP26 meeting. Maybe we need a little more in the universe, in this verse rather than the metaverse. Agree. It's like, thanks, Zuck. If you were thinking about deleting your Facebook profile, that announcement probably just pushed you over the edge to do it. I really applaud, anyway, the bravery of Frances Hagen, who was the former Facebook employee who's leaked all of this internal research. And, you know, she was the woman behind the Facebook Files series of investigative journalism in the Wall Street Journal. Scott Galloway talked about this on Pivot Podcast, another one of our favorites this week. But... He's so right. She really underscores the difference between being right and being effective. And so many journalists have been saying these things about Facebook for years and years and years. But with the power of one whistleblower, she's been incredibly effective in in bringing these guys to some form of justice and eliciting some form of change, however small it might seem right now. But this woman is pretty incredible, frankly, and I can't wait to read her book and, and hear more from her. I'm kind of thinking like maybe she needs the Aaron Sorkin treatment, the counterbalance to the social network, right? You've got to come out the other side of this and watch her as a film. That's a great idea, Aaron. You know where to send the royalty checks. <laughs> I'll set up the pitch meeting now. <laughs> Aaron, call us. Exactly. We're waiting. Exactly. Okay, Michael. Well, one story I've been following that it's not a story yet, but it's going to get there is the peer pressure among vaccines for 
your children. Like, remember how when we all got vaccinated, like there was the, like this blood sport to see who could get vaccinated first? Uh, I don't know if you call it blood sport as well as a little maybe fudging of uh, pre-existing conditions as well. Yeah, well, it was like the fanciest people were getting the vaccines first and everyone was all outraged about that. And now there's this kind of contrarian thing happening where some parents, at least, you know, in certain Tony New York circles, are getting a little bit of peer pressure about the vaccine. So here's this weird thing that happened to me. The day that appointments became available online for children in the state of New York, it was probably like 8, 12 in the morning. I was getting off the subway to take my daughter to school. And out of nowhere, a woman approached me and said, "Uh, are you aware that appointments for your children are now available on CVS.com? And I was like, Jesus, is this some sort of guerrilla marketing technique? And then I was like, I think she was trying to shame me into getting this done right away. When I'm thinking, lady, look, I'm totally going to get on this the minute I drop her off at school. Like these websites haven't even been active for 14 hours yet. And like, here you are already uh, harassing strangers on the train. Gotta love the enthusiasm for the vaccine. But that being said, it's interesting. And I've talked to some friends of mine who have also said, you know, there's been a lot of, of good old fashioned canine style rear end sniffing about who is going to be getting their child vaccinated and when and how expediently. So it's just yet another thing to add to my to-do list and feel insecure about until it's done. Wow. Everything gets, everything, the simplest things get very complicated, don't they? It's like you can never win. It's like, you know, in addition to the 75,000 things I haven't done yet as a parent this week, now this is yet, yet another thing to feel bad about and one that has huge public health consequences. People, I will get on it. I promise. It's just been a busy week. On the, on the, on the subject of shots and, and, and public health, we've got a very uh, insightful story this week by Rich Cohen, who, as you know, has been covering the Theranos trial of Elizabeth Holmes. And he's got a little thinking this week, which, as Graydon mentioned, uh, you know, I hope he's wrong, but who, you know, it could be, he could very well be right, which is, Rich is looking at the trial, he's been covering it for us, and, and as he writes this week, he says, is there a chance that Elizabeth Holmes will walk free? And in Rich's mind, he says, you know, who, who, whom does a jury hate more, an accused grifter or filthy rich people who let their greed lead them into a con? In other words, Rich is saying most juries in this case would want to side with the victims. But in here, in this trial, as he points out, the victims or perceived victims, it's really hard to have any sympathy for them because they were members of the wealthiest, savviest families in America, the Waltons, the DeVoses, the Murdochs. And they benefited by getting this inside track to invest by dint of their wealth and their position. And all of a sudden, you've got a jury that's looking at them saying like, well, maybe you should have used your brains for once. So it's an interesting and, and I think provocative uh, perspective for Mitch. And we'll see where, where where it falls. Yeah, an awful lot of rich people are feeling sorry for themselves these days, Michael, which brings us to Emily Radikowski. For those of you who do not know who she is, consider yourself hashtag blessed because she is everywhere. She's a model. She's an actress. She designs a line of swimwear, which I certainly would never be caught on the beach wearing something like that small, but it's very popular. It's called Inamorata. Anyway, uh, and now she has a book out. It's called My Body. Now, this... I have been following Emily Ratajkowski, Michael, as you know, for a very long time because she has sort of been at the forefront of this social media-fueled messaging of female empowerment, right? Like showing our bodies is a way to empower ourselves. Uh, you know, posting provocative pictures is a way to empower ourselves. And and she's always had like a lot of sort of smart sounding analysis for why that felt true to her. But I was really never buying it. You know, to me, it was always like, well, 
is this like some kind of misguided vanity that's causing you to do this? Or are you using your body to sell bathing suits and to get you a lot of followers? So you book campaigns and you make more money on those campaigns. Like, was it strictly a commercial exercise or was it something more? Anyway, it was never totally clear. Now she's come out with a book called my body in which she writes among other things about how difficult it was for her to grow up beautiful. And Judith Newman a marvelous writer who has such a great take on this writes about it in her story in this week's issue. When she filed the copy, she called it welcome to the beautiful people pity party. Um, And Emily is not alone in feeling this way. We also have Kate Beckinsale who was griping on Howard Stern about how difficult it is to have an exceptionally high IQ. And in fact, she felt like it actually hurt her as an actress. And Judith asks like, well, where was it when you were reading that Van Helsing script, you know, but I just love this story for a lot of reasons. I think Judith nails it here where she says, you know, there was something about the pandemic, this period of profound loss for millions. It made the privilege want us to remember that they're hurting too. And it's almost as if they become competitive about their problems. You know, she reminds us that this is the year that uh, Lourdes Leon, Madonna's daughter, worried that she might be remembered only for her looks. And Presley Gerber... Sidney Crawford's model son had misunderstood tattooed on his cheek. And then there was Kylie Jenner, who recently confessed that her worst fear is, quote, waking up and finding something bad about me on the Internet. Yeah, my my worst fear is decidedly more dire than that. <laughs> like, I go way darker than that, Michael. But, um, yeah, I, I, I know this. It, it's this trend. It's like, you know, who has it worst? And. There's a line in here from Judith that I just love that is so smart. She wrote, terrible things can happen to people with brains, beauty, and wealth, but brains, beauty, and wealth are not among those terrible things, which really gets to the heart of this. It's like, you can't really complain about this stuff and expect people to take you super seriously, especially when we're in the middle of a global pandemic and we have people who are dealing with real hardship, like illness, death, loss of income, loss of livelihood, uh, isolation, you know, all chronic disease. So many really awful things are going on that, you know, having a high IQ just doesn't really feel like one of them. I don't know. We're picking out one thing that Kate said, but I, again, you're just like, it's, yeah, I think it's lack of perspective. And so that's why this piece tied into Rich's, Rich Cohen's insights about, you know, who really is the victim? These rich people victimized by, apparently, allegedly by Elizabeth Holmes. Hard to have sympathy for them. Judith makes a very good point at the end where she talks about, she encourages these wealthy people, these rich and beautiful people to, you know, there's the old WWJD, what would Jesus do kind of thing that people, she can she comes up with WWIBD, that is, what would Ingrid Bergman do, right? And this comes from when she was interviewing Bergman's daughter, Isabella Rossellini, no stranger to being objectified for her looks herself, right? And what did she tells a story? What is it, Ashley? Judith talks about how she was interviewing Isabella Rossellini and she asked what her mother had taught her about dealing with beauty. And Isabella said, she taught me matter of factness. I remember people saying to my mother, you're so beautiful. And she worried, what can one say to that? And finally, she came up with a perfect reply. Yes. Isn't it lucky? Great kicker. It's like, accept it, enjoy it. You can acknowledge it. You don't have to downplay it, but... But the idea that's, that somehow we, the unwashed masses, are going to relate or care, eh, it's a little a bit of a stretch, right? Yeah, and I don't doubt that, like, you know, Emily Ratajkowski and Kate Beckinsale and all these women have had horrific experiences being objectified by men, especially in Hollywood and the modeling world and all of that. I, this isn't meant to discount those experiences. But the fact is, I just don't think that people are buying the notion that growing up beautiful and smart is a real hardship. 
especially in the context of all the other very real problems that people are contending with these days. Michael, has it been hard for you to, was it difficult for you growing up to be so tall and handsome? (laughs) Did not grow up tall and handsome. Was it hard for you to grow up to being so charming and beautiful? Uh, Let me tell you, (laughs) if only you knew, Michael, I'll save it for my therapist. (laughs) Yeah, save it it for the memoir. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Again, it's like stuff you might want to talk to your therapist about instead of putting in a book for everyone like us to read and critique. Exactly. Michael, another thing we can all kind of agree on is Squid Game is a cultural phenomenon. Elena Claverino gets at the heart of the matter and talks about the hit Netflix series' relationship to TikTok. Welcome, Elena. Hi, Ashley. Hi, Michael. Hi, all. So did you guys know that the hashtag Squid Game has been viewed 11 billion times on TikTok? 11 billion? Yeah, it's completely gone viral. I mean, scrolling through Squid Game these days kind of feels like entering an episode of Squid Game. All right, so that's why your, your piece is such a revelation this week. It's Squid Game as you say, came out of nowhere, comes out of South Korea. And it's kind of one of these lessons for Hollywood now. Like there was no marketing behind it really. And it's this thing where you hope if you're creating something, it catches on virally. And this is the true definition. I mean, it goes on to get discovered on TikTok and all these memes. And it goes on to, it's now earned almost a billion dollars, $900 million for Netflix, right? So, but it all comes out of TikTok, right? It all comes out of TikTok. People have been saying it's down to word of mouth. But to be honest, when something's been viewed 11 billion times on the social media, basically it has all of the ingredients to go viral on TikTok because as BuzzFeed's publisher says, it's not about the content on social media. It's about how that content makes you feel. And Squid Game had all the right ingredients to go viral. It had the playground games that everyone can relate to. It had this very like brash and bold color palette that is instantly recognizable as you scroll through on social media. And all of the games kind of felt like ready-made challenges for people to challenge themselves. And then there was a premise of the games that at the end, whoever won was a millionaire. And that's also an attractive notion. So I think people are overlooking just how much all of these elements came together to make it a TikTok slash Instagram slash social media sensation. So it it is that kind of mix of people. Almost what I've seen is it's also Squid Game is made for imitation on TikTok, right? I mean, it's like the production values of the show are kind of so low in a way. It's like people in tracksuits and doing games. And so you can almost imitate it yourself very quickly rather than something like Bridgerton, Netflix's previous biggest success. This is pretty easy if you're a 12-year-old kid in your backyard to like, I'm going to do a a Squid Game meme, right? Exactly. Well, Bridgerton required skills. Squid Game, anyone can participate in these games and try their luck. And I guess that's how it went so viral. It kind of reminded me of the ALS ice bucket challenge that went viral in 2015. It was just such an easy thing to do, you know, just throw an ice bucket over your head. And it connected you with a community. I think that's kind of what was happening with Squid Game. Yeah, like that was a fundraiser for a very serious illness. And this is just a feeling of camaraderie around a dystopian fight to the death drama. But hey, (laughs) same thing, kind of. (laughs) Elena, for those who are not on TikTok, kind of walk us through how people are spending their time there and, and why these kinds of trends and hashtags and behaviors and activities are going viral. Like, why why do you think that people have latched onto this platform so virulently? The nature of it, these short videos and the fact that 
it's not like that you follow, it kind of works with an algorithm. The more, more time you spend on a video, then I'll show you the subsequent video. So people don't take themselves as seriously as they do on other social media apps. And I think that's also what made it so appealing. First to the younger generations and then to the older ones, because it's more fun and more laid back than Instagram, where you're always showing your best life. This is less polished, right? I mean, it's just quick and dirty if you want and in the sense of like it's not high production just as like here it is on the go and rather than that feeling of instagram is that's not reality that's a little more what is when someone's fake version of themselves right but this is i think just shots from everyday life in a way right exactly more unpolished more immediate yeah exactly but you know there is a darker side too which we should probably touch on which is have you guys read about these tiktok challenges the school challenges especially that high schoolers are you know, that have basically caused a lot of problems for high schoolers. Like it started with the devious lick challenge in which students were challenged to steal something from the school. It was usually something like a soap dispenser or a bathroom appliance. But there's apparently a different school challenge for each month of the year. So first it was the devious lick challenge. And then in October, it was the slap a teacher challenge. So these things are definitely going a little bit dark. Alan, how do you feel like the platform is evolving kind of over the course of its trajectory? I mean, like everything else that's popular, I can see that it, it gets dark. And especially the fact that it's so immediate. And Instagram is hurtful towards young women because it gives them the wrong ideals of beauty. And it can be hurtful towards everyone because it gives them kind of social pressure. But TikTok does too. Being laid back on this platform is just a facade as well. If I were really cynical, Ashley and Ellen, I would say that those games you mentioned, they could be part of Squid Game marketing. I'm just saying, they're games you have to play. That's pretty cynical, Michael, even for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we're going dark. I just thought I'd throw it out there. You know, it could be someone thought of it. I'm okay, moving on. Elena, while we have you here, what are you hearing about rumblings about a next season of Squid Game? It could happen. And it, it kind of looked like it, it, it was going to happen towards the end of season one, to be honest. It kind of left you on a cliffhanger. So I think it might. I'm definitely, I, I want to see a second season. With almost a billion dollars in revenue, I would think there's, there's a high incentive to come back to it if you're the creator of it and the team behind it. Exactly. You also mentioned in the story this week, the Squid Game inspired dance music song by DJ Reese. Cifrios, which is also going viral, right? Yes. To be honest, there have been a lot of those. There have been a lot of like Squid Game inspired, like mini songs for TikTok, short ones, longer ones. It's pretty weird how much stuff is going behind this. Every time if you Google TikTok Squid Game, every day there'll be a new headline about something new that's going viral. Now the big thing I think is the Dalgona toffee cutting filter. There have been headlines about how viral it's going over the last few days. Wait, what's the latest one? Michael and I missed this. We are really not TikTokers. Tell us. Can I get a translation, Elena? Okay, so the toffee cutting game that they were playing in the games, TikTok's done like a filter that hangs over your head. That's been going viral. That's been going viral like crazy. Everyone's been using that filter. And I mean, it's crazy just because there are like 10 headlines about how viral the filter's going one day and then tomorrow will be something else. Toffee. All right. Now I'm, I'm scrolling it right now. There I am. <laughs> People have mixed reactions to Squid Game. Where do you fall on it? I personally loved it, to be honest. I thought it was great. I watched it twice, not gonna lie. How about you guys? It's not my thing. Michael, you know I don't you know I'm just gonna watch beaches and bridges of Madison County. I'm not into the scary dystopian stuff. It weirdly kind of like reminded me of this is dating myself. I like the dystopian of it. It reminded me of this 
movie from the 70s called Soylent Green with Charlton Heston. And it was set in the near future when food and everything was running out. And just, I think there is that thrill for people imagining a world and uh, like Soylent Green or Silent Running, things like that, where it just was like, how bad could it get? And I think after the last, oh, few years and looking at the near future people, they want something to give form and shape to their abstract dystopian fears. And then something like this comes along and sort of, you know, I think in the same way, even that Handmaid's Tale did that for people. It gave them a place to locate their anxiety. And maybe this is part of it as well. So that's my theory on it. It also touched on a lot of like existential like conundrums big dilemmas i mean what would you do to survive would you betray a friend what would you do for money i mean they're all like pressing questions that made the show gripping i guess were you a fan of hunger games not that big a fan to be honest okay it has been in some ways compared to that like those challenges what would you do and would you stick with someone or become the lone wolf and choosing yourself over all, right? But yeah, you're right. It does ask those moral questions as well, right? It's like Batari Royale, that Japanese cult movie, I guess, which was famous, I think, in the 2000s. The high school kids got shipped to this island and had to kill one another. It's that kind of genre. Little Lord of the Flies. Exactly. Yeah. By the way, I should point out for the listeners at home that there is a rooster in the background where Ellen is. Am I correct, Ellen? There's a rooster back there. You are correct. He's <laughs> staring at him and like, shut up. <laughs> Please. We love chickens here on morning meeting. No problem whatsoever. <laughs> Great. Well, Elena, thank you so much for joining us. And please continue watching these shows so we don't have to. Sounds great. Thank you guys so much and have a wonderful day. Thanks so much. See you soon. All right. Well, Michael, I'm still not going to go and watch. Yeah, it's a little too grisly for me. Sorry. Yeah. I think you probably saw as much Squid Game as you needed to see during Halloween on the, on the streets with trick-or-treaters. Yeah, exactly. I mean, trick-or-treating in New York is a complete blood sport, and uh, I don't really need to be watching it on Netflix as well. It's bake-off season, Michael. I mean, come on. You know I'm going to be watching Paul and Prue instead of, the, instead of those guys. Something a little more comforting. <laughs> Just like a delicious Victoria sponge. Anyway, before we head off into this beautiful weekend, is there anything at all you can recommend to us? I do. I've got, courtesy of George Galagirakis, one of our writers at large, he has a great essay review about a new book out by Mark Myers called Rock Concert, an oral history as told by the artists backstage insiders and fans who were there. And we had an oral history last week about Jimi Hendrix, so we're in the rock and roll oral history world, it seems. But what I love about this is, you know, he's the book, as George points out, covers the necessary familiar territory, the Ellis phenomenon, Dylan plugging in, Altamont, all those watershed episodes, but you also get the small moments. Two of my favorite are Ronnie Spector talks about sneaking into New York's Peppermint Lounge with her sister and her cousin, and in order to look older, they stuffed Kleenex in their bras, dressed in the same outfits, and held cigarettes, where they were mistaken by the club's manager for dancers who told them to get on stage and eventually sing. Before long, they become famous as the Ronettes, tour of the UK. They even open for the Rolling Stones. My second favorite one comes courtesy of Blondie's Chris Stein, who says that when they toured Australia in 1977, John Denver was there at the same time, and it was a huge deal, bigger than Blondie. And he says, every time we tried to rent a piece of equipment, the answer was, oh, John Denver has it. It was like there was only three amplifiers, and all of them were on John's truck, as Chris says. So very fun piece and a very fun book, courtesy of George. And you, my dear? All right, Michael, I got a lot of flack last week for recommending the Bridges of Madison County. And one of my friends said, what is next? Are you seriously going to recommend beaches? 
Yeah, I am going to recommend Beaches. Okay, Bette Midler can do no wrong. What more do you want? Deborah Winger, a story of friendship and sadness, heartbreak, love, all of it. It's all there. It's in Beaches. Anyway, I'll get to something a little bit more current. I'm going to recommend, Michael, common knowledge to New Yorkers, but for those of you who are venturing back to the States after spending many months away from us, it is ballet season here in New York. New York City Ballet is starting its performances of The Nutcracker on November 26th. I love The Nutcracker. I go every year. I will be there this year. And it's just wonderful to be back in the theater and seeing ballet. I was there a few weeks ago to see Tyler Peck perform in in some Balanchine work. It was just wonderful. And we've really missed you guys. New York has finally reopened opening to tourists basically now right michael or next week november 8th i think monday yeah and the city's ready for you our cultural institutions are ready our restaurants are ready it is not the same without all of you so we welcome you back and and if you need personal recommendations on what to do in new york you know where to find michael and i we are here for you and we just want to say that we've missed you all right well on that optimistic and cheery note michael Please read us out and thank you everyone for joining us, as always. Thank you everyone for joining us. And as I, to quote Susie Dent, I wish you all some apricity this weekend at some point, that fine feeling of the sun on your back on a winter's day. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thank you for joining us.